0: I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expressing, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Welcome to episode 14 of Money Expresso. My guest today is William Pratt, co-founder of our sponsor, Paradigm Norton. Now you may have noticed that I've been chatting with a few of my colleagues from Paradigm Norton. The simple reason is that each of them spend much of their days talking to their clients about money. So we figured it's only fair that they share their own unique money stories. William is a chartered accountant and a chartered and certified financial planner. His qualifications and life experience make him a great client relationship manager and board director for Paradigm Norton. In today's podcast, I talked to William about growing up in Hall Green in Birmingham, knowing that money was very tight and how that helped shape his outlook on money and life. He tells us about the excitement of setting up Paradigm Norton as a brand new business and also the practical, tough financial implications of having to put his own home home online to set the business up. He talks about his relationship with money and hard work and imparts some really helpful tips around how he and his wife are educating their two teenage daughters about money in preparation for going off to university and starting life. He speaks about finding balance in his family's money life and talks about being a liberated spender and why for many money remains a taboo subject. He also explains why for him at least a car is so much more than a status symbol. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, sit back and let's crack on with today's podcast. So William, it's really lovely to have you, a fellow Brummy, on the podcast today. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's very nice to be here.
0: Um, William, could we ask you to just kick off um, by, in a nutshell, just tell me a little bit about your journey to become a founding director at Paradigm Norton and why you chose financial planning rather than accountancy.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so after I graduated at university, uh, I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, and trained as an accountant. Um, and I have to say I really enjoyed it. There was, there was lots that was great about it. I think I, I grew up a lot and I learned a lot. Um, I learned professional skills and I, and I enjoyed the technical rigour of the exams and of accountancy. But I think as the, as the training contracts sort of progressed, I, I, I became increasingly aware that I, I just couldn't see myself being an accountant for the rest of my life. I just didn't see that career uh, as being something I just wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. I think, I think in particular, I, I often reflected on what I was doing and I thought I, I struggled to see how I was adding any value as an auditor, so I, I trained through the audit route. And I always struggled to think, what, what value am I adding here? Um, you know, as an auditor, you, you are simply telling people, you are checking what someone's already done and making sure that it's right. You're not really um, advising or adding any value. It's a statutory obligation that you're helping someone to fulfil. So I found that kind of unsatisfying. Yeah. Um, but equally, I was aware that accountancy is a, a very sort of retrospective activity you're looking back and reporting on what's already happened and checking that it's accurate um and I, what i really wanted to do was to do something and, and i think this was the attraction of financial planning i really wanted to have something with that same technical rigor but i want it, it, i think as i progressed through accountancy i realized i wanted to deal with with people as individuals and not with big corporates um and i just wanted to do something that was a bit more future focused looking ahead Aspirational, goal setting, strategic, looking forward um, and not just looking behind and reporting on stuff that had already happened. Um, now, I knew Barry uh, and his wife Bev. I knew them outside of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Barry was just in the process at that stage of, of transitioning what was then a sort of more traditional IFA business into a financial planning business. Um, and the company that he was part of was owned by an American parent company where the norm was actually to recruit chartered accountants and transition them into financial planning. So when I got chatting to Barry about his business, about my accountancy, it just seemed that the two things came together yeah. really, really neatly. So as soon as I qualified from PwC, basically, I, I I joined Barry in what was then a financial planning firm owned by this, uh, by this American company. Um, but... Uh, You know, interestingly, I'd only been with them for a few months and the American parent company decided that they didn't want to retain this UK business anymore and they were pulling out. So I'd only been with them for a few months and suddenly, um, you know, the the whole thing was was coming apart. The American parent company was saying that they weren't going to pursue this interest in the UK anymore. Um, And so we looked at the UK business, which had an office in Bristol, Leeds and London, and thought, is, is there any way that we can take it on, run a business, run it as a business ourselves? Um, and we quickly realized that we just couldn't do it. But what we did come up with is, well, why don't we make each of those offices in Leeds, London, and Bristol a separate company? Um, and so Barry and I basically hatched a plan. Why don't we acquire? I mean, it was tiny, it was a fledgling financial planning business, but why don't we acquire? The Bristol bit of this business, uh, and why don't we set it up as our own company, uh, which is which is what we did, and we called it Paradigm, and you know, the rest is history.
0: I, I don't think I knew quite all of that all of that detail. That's fascinating. How um, you know the business that we know now, twenty years later, was was born almost by accident in that in that context.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I had some really interesting conversations. You know with my wife rachel at the time you yeah know, um so I'd, I'd left the sort of the safe confines of pwc where you know you had a career trajectory ahead of you and a big firm that everyone's heard of uh, and i joined this financial planning firm which she completely supported she knew exactly what i was doing and why yeah
0: um
1: but then yeah within within a few months you know i, I remember coming home and saying well i've kind of got some good news and some bad news um <laughs> the bad news is i think i'm about to be made redundant um, but the good news is, me and Barry are going to start our own thing. Don't worry, um, you know we've got this plan. Um, and uh, you know, Rachel was was brilliant. She was supportive as mm. she always has been. And um, we literally we remortgaged the house. We took out every penny of equity that we had in the house. Rachel was six months pregnant at the time with our first child, Hannah. Uh, and we yeah, but we remortgaged, got every penny we could out of the house, every penny that we had in savings, which. You know, back then wasn't a lot. Yeah, um, poured it all into the company, and yeah, as I say, the rest is history. So that must have
0: felt. It, I mean, how did that feel? Was that exciting? Was that scary? Was it something? Did it feel like madness? What was it like? Um, <laughs> I
1: don't think it felt like madness, uh, and I don't think it felt that scary either. To be honest, I think. I, th- I think generally in life, uh, one tends to feel sort of less um worried or anxious about something that you feel that you've got a sense of control over yeah and probably more anxious and more worried about something that just feels out of your control Mm. Mm. um i think with starting paradigm it it just felt very exciting yeah um you know i was just so passionate and excited by it all Mm. um and, and sort of having that sort of sense of not control but the, the, I, I had a part to play in it. it you know there was a sense in which I could contribute to whether this thing was going to be a success or not and so in that respect it didn't feel like you were going quite out on a limb in the same way as you would be if you didn't have that that level of um, sort of um, responsibility for it and that level of control over it. I suppose um, and I guess also when we were young I mean I was only in my mid to late 20s mm-hmm. you know it, I think you are just more risky when you're when you're that age. I mean, I think it was probably you know, it was probably a, it probably felt like a bigger gamble for Rachel. Mm. You know. Um but she, I mean she was completely supportive. Um, you know, she, she had to be, you know, we, we mortgaged the house together, we put all our savings into it. She had to be totally bought into it as well. Um, which she was and, and, and she she wasn't just supportive in a sort of passive way, you know, she's a mm. you know, she's a very bright and intelligent woman and and you know, kicked the tires a bit herself. Yeah. But you no know, I think we just went into it with our eyes wide open and said yeah, well, let, let's give it a crack
0: I, I um I can really relate to that idea from when I set up my own business and that mm-hmm. sense of excitement and one of the things I, and I think i 'd probably come back and talk about it on another podcast um, What always fascinates me is the risk that people are prepared to take when you 've got nothing to lose mm-hmm. seem potentially bigger than the risk people are prepared to take when they have something to lose. So when they've built assets or a way, a standard of living or a way, a lifestyle or something. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting feature of us as human beings. And it's probably something to do with us, you know, wanting to protect our, our home, our families and, 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 and all of those those things. But that's, that, that's that's thank you for telling us about that. Um, <laughs> William, can I just take you back a little bit? So I'd like to go back to Birmingham. Um, and um, which bit of Birmingham are you from, William?
1: Uh, I, I grew up in Hall Green, which is in the south of Birmingham.
0: OK, I, I vaguely remember it from my brummy background too. Um, tell me, what was your earliest memory of money growing up in your family?
1: Um... <coughs> It's, it's not earliest memories so much as it was. I think more of a general awareness mm. um, that, that we didn't have much. Um, I, I didn't grow up in a in a wealthy family at all. You know, we really didn't have very much at all. So rather than being a sort of single um, memory that stands out, I think it, I just grew up with an awareness that money was very very tight. Yeah. Um, my, my dad was an electrician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for the post office, which then became. The royal Mail. He worked there his entire career. Um, my mum didn't work um, and I, I just knew that money was very tight. My mum and dad never owned their own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never had a car. We never owned our own car. Uh, we never went on foreign holidays. You, you, you know, there was so much that we didn't do. Um, and, and so I just grew up with this awareness mm. of, of just there not being a lot of money, uh, of not having much.
0: And how do you feel that there's those feelings of there not being much, and and a word that we often use within our profession is kind of scarcity. Mm. How how have those feelings, how have they carried forward into adult life or the work that you do with your clients?
1: Um, I mean, I think when when I was, you know, when I was young and growing up, there's, there's, there's an extent to which, there's an extent to which you don't know any better to start with, you know, you are just who you are, and and and, and to start with that was the norm, I guess. As you as as you grow up and get older, and especially as you leave home go to university, you, you sort of perhaps are able to put your own experience into a little bit more context and perhaps sort of understand it a little bit more and or or draw more comparisons. Perhaps not that's always helpful. Um, but but I think you know probably what it what it probably instilled in me. And nature and nurture is a fascinating thing and there's probably a, there's, there'll definitely be some nature of it in me but also the nurturing of just being very careful I think with money yeah uh, I've always been a saver uh, and there will definitely be something in my nature to do with that but I think the nurture of how I grew up was that I saved you know if you wanted anything you saved for it and so I've always always saved um and I think yeah that's and and that I think has always been that that i've always instilled that in myself i guess you know answer to a question that how that translates into what i do with with clients i mean what i love about financial planning is just talking to clients about what the future might look like but it can't look like that now yes how are you going to get there Mm. you know what are we going to do today that helps you get to where you're trying to be at whatever point in the future um and at its simplest that's saving yeah um, yeah. You know, what you do with those savings, all the complexity around it is what it is. But, you know, ultimately it's about having some sort of sense of what you're trying to achieve and where you're trying to go and making financial decisions now to help you get there. Um, so I guess, sort of coming from a background where I didn't have any money, um, you know, i you know, recognized that I wanted stuff, I was going to have to earn it and I was going to have to save for it and yeah. wait for it. Yeah. What was your first job, William? Uh, my first job was, um, I worked for uh, the, the supermarket, Iceland, a frozen food place. <laughs> okay. uh, so I, uh, I started working there when I was, I was approaching 16 and I got a Saturday job there. Uh, and then, uh, and then when, I, when I went to university, it, no one in my family had ever been to university. And so even when I went through school, that wasn't the expectation that I would go to university. And I also didn't go to a very good school either. So no one at school, you know, that wasn't the norm at my school mm-hmm. either. So um, I worked hard at school and I liked school. And then I actually ended up doing really well at A-level and deciding to go to university. But but I had no, a, a, it was sort of quite a late decision and B, I had no money. So I actually went to my manager at Iceland and said, look, I've decided I'm going to go to university next year. Can, can I work full time? Uh, and he, yeah, he yeah, he said. Yeah, well, I'll sort of something out for you. And I, so I got a full time job. So my first job was at Iceland, working on Saturdays, th- Thursday nights, and Saturdays. That was that was back in the day when Thursday nights were the only night of late night shopping till eight <laughs> o'clock, <8:00. laughs> uh, and then Saturday, and then Saturdays. Uh, but then, yeah. So I spent, uh, I took a year off then between A level and university, mm-hmm. and I worked full time at Iceland mm-hmm. in a concrete box at the back of the store that was minus eighteen, um, and uh, and yeah, and, and basically made you know earned the money and saved the money to to go to uni gosh that must have been quite a slog yeah (laughs) it was quite quite hard but i mean you know i I knew that i really wanted to go to university i knew my parents had no money yeah Uh, you know i was fortunate in the sense that back then uh, a there were no tuition fees Mm -hmm. uh and b there was a means tested grant um, which i got and in fact it was it was the only time my my parents or my dad ever talked about money and it was excruciating for him because to to, to qualify for the grant you know we ha- had to apply for it and he had to prove what he earned yeah uh, which wasn't very much yeah and it was excruciating for him to actually have to divulge that. i mean i was 18 but yeah um but yes yeah, so, so i got a full grant uh and i saved money by working at iceland and then actually in my in my uni holidays um i I'd worked back there again in the summer holiday, in the long summer holidays, I would work there uh, just to sort of top the cash back up again. Yeah.
0: And so I could, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, so you used those, that money that you earned, you, you were saving that to help fund you for a university. Yeah. Was,
1: yeah. 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 yeah I mean, as I say, my, my, my family had no means of supporting me through university yeah. at all. Um, so I knew that all I was going to have to live on, was my grant and whatever I could save and, and, and it, the quid pro quo there, there were no tuition fees great but there weren't student loans either yeah so you know I had to be self-sufficient so yeah I saved yeah I saved I think I, think I saved about four grand four or five grand uh and I thought well that's you know that's about a thousand to fifteen hundred quid a year for a yeah, three-year yeah. course and yeah. that was and, and I got my grant of about four and a half grand I think so that was, it got that was you through
0: Amazing. And, and, and why Bristol? What was, what was the attraction? Um, so I,
1: I, I'm not one of these people that ever grew up knowing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just always, at the next level of education, I just kept doing the thing that I enjoyed most. Um, and that was, for me, that was geography. I loved geography. Oh. Uh, and so I ended up doing a geography degree. So partly I researched the good universities for geography. But also partly, as I, as I said, um, I ended up doing, you know, way better at A-level than certainly anyone at school or home would ever have imagined, really. And so suddenly that not only opened up university, but it opened up that tier of universities, mm. like Bristol, um, which was great. But what was what was also brilliant was because I had my grades, you know, I didn't have to have interviews or anything like that. I just got an offer. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I... I Caught the train from Birmingham New Street down to Bristol, and just came and had a bit of a. I just came and had a look around. Yeah, and I just liked the look and feel of the city. I walked up to the, the university area and just walked around, and I just just liked the look of it. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it was any more scientific than that. My my oldest daughter is uh, going to uni in September, and the planning and the thinking, <laughs> of it, everything that goes into it, and I just think back and I think I just got my A levels and thought, okay, and checked yeah. out a few universities. And when, <laughs> but it's, I guess you know my circumstances were different
0: it's funny Bristol's always held a real deep-seated attraction for me I was I was as a Brummie as I said but brought up in North Devon and when I uh finished doing A-levels uh, I I decided to train as a nurse and the only hospital I really wanted to be taken on by was the Bristol Royal Infirmary okay. <laughs> didn't accept me William what an injustice but no it's a lovely yeah, city and I guess like <laughs> indeed indeed so you've mentioned your daughters. How, you've got uh, two teenage daughters, as I understand it, which I'm, um, I'm sure keeps you on your toes. Yes. How do you help your daughters think about money?
1: Um, gosh, I mean, in many respects, they're chalk and cheese. Uh, really? Hannah, my oldest, uh, is a spender. Money doesn't hang around long with her. Uh, and Rosie, who's 16, is an absolute chip off the old block sailor, <laughs> um, which, is, which is really, really interesting. I, think, I mean, it's an interesting question. And it's one that, to be honest, I, I, you know, me and Rachel continue to grapple with hmm. in that, you know, the upbringing that our daughters have, um, you know, it's, it's a million miles from my own upbringing. Hmm. Um, you know, when I think of the, you know, when I think about what the girls have, you know, they live in, you know, we've, we're lucky enough to have this, uh, you know, lovely home on the edge of the Mendip Hills in Somerset. You know, they get driven to their private schools and their posh cars, and, and it's stuff that I never had. Yeah. And, and yet, at the same time, that's not their fault. We've, those are decisions that we've made. And so, in the same way that when I was growing up with nothing, I didn't particularly want to be judged on that, you know, so in the same way, you know the life that our, that Hannah and Rosie have got is the product of decisions that we have made, yeah. and so I kind of fit. You know Rachel and I, you know, feel it's it's incumbent upon us to sort of try and, as they get older, understand those decisions that we've made, mm-hmm. um, understand how we, as a family uh, 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 and as individuals, have got to where we've got to, uh, and just some of the thought processes that we go through. I, I guess in terms of our own. Money management and then just sort of trying to help them be sort of in a position to, to stand on their own two feet. I mean, I guess, you know, one thing that, especially latterly as they get older and as we look ahead to sort of Hannah leaving leaving home and what have you, you know, we have reminded them that the life that we've given them now won't be the life that they enjoy when they, you know, when they leave home. You know, sometimes we, we love going on family holidays together and, you know, we're lucky enough these days to go to some really lovely places. But, you know, sometimes we'll go, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be in Greece, for instance, and mm-hmm. we're staying in a, a gorgeous villa somewhere, but we'll go out for lunch in a little tavern that has got a couple of little apartments above it. And we'll say, just so that you know, when we were first married, we didn't go to the villa that we, <laughs> never, you know, we were yeah. in. Now. We, we were up in one of those apartments. So when you go on holiday with your mates, that's where you're going to be. Yeah. You know? So just trying to sort of help them to understand the life that we've got but it isn't the life that we've always had. It's been you know, a journey for us to get yeah. to where we are now. And for them, they're going to have, that, have to explore all of that for themselves. But they're not yeah. going to start off in life with what they've got now. And do you think they get that, William? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, do you know what? I, I think I think to an extent they do. Yeah. I think to an extent they do. There's an extent to which you can only prepare them so much that at the end of the day, they've got to live it. That's um different. they've got to they've got to leave home and they've got to experience it. Yeah. Um and so you know, no amount of talking to them about it is gonna uh is, is gonna be enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got to go out and live it. Um,
0: and, um when Hannah goes off to university, um you, you said she's a spender. What, what, will you, what, will your, um, what, what will your advice be to her, William, on how she's going to manage her allowance or um, her loan or whatever you, mm. whatever you choose
1: to do? Yeah, so, I mean, what I've, I mean, I haven't gone through the detail of it with her yet. It's a bit premature, but I've, I've, I've talked her through the principles, which is that there are, certain, there are certain things that I see it as my responsibility to provide. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that I think it's mine and Rachel's choice to provide. Uh, and then there's certain things over and above that that is her choice to figure out how she's going to fund it yeah so i know that i know that student loans you know, you know people take different views on that um my, my particular view um, is that i I'm fortunate enough that i can i can afford to fund them through university so me and rachel have made the decision that we're we're going to pay for their tuition fees. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll also pay her rent, Mm -hmm. and then I'll give her an allowance on top of that. Mm -hmm. But the allowance on top of that won't be a lot. It'll be enough to get by. Mm -hmm. And then she knows that anything over and above that, well, she's got to find that. She can either take out the maintenance loans. If she wants to spend more than we give her, that's up to her. Yeah. She can take out the maintenance loans or she can get a job and earn the money and what have you. So I think what I'm sort of preparing her for is that we will support her up to a point. Mm-hmm. But that point, compared to the life that she's had here, will mm-hmm. be relatively modest. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it's up to her. You know, If she yes. wants to spend more, then she needs to get a job, she needs to earn it, or she needs to get the, the student loan and will be responsible for paying it off. Sounds like a good balance, William. Sounds like a good balance to me. I hope so. I mean, coming from where I come from, you know, it's it's a really interesting balance because, you know, I I think they're incredibly lucky. Mm. You know, they have way more than I could ever have dreamed of at that age. But as I say, that's not their fault. Um, So so on on the one hand, I don't want to put it all on a plate for them. Mm. But at the same time, I think if I... If I choose not to support them, then what? What's the money for? Yeah. And so, you know, for me and for Rachel, it's it's finding that balance of not not giving them too much, that they've got to they've got to stand on their own two feet. They've got to live their own lives. They've got to realise that you know the life that we've given them so far, they're going to have to step back from yeah. and earn their way back to it if that's the life that they want. So you don't want to put it all on a plate for them. But at the same time, it would be perverse if having having been as successful as we have, we didn't support them in that next step. So it's just, it's a really, it's something that, to be honest, we wrestle with and grapple with. Hopefully we'll get more right than we get wrong, but we won't get it all right. But it's just trying to find that balance of giving them the support that they need and and that we feel that why wouldn't we give it when Mm. we've got what we've got. Mm but also recognising that they need to perhaps notch their expectations in life down a little bit for a few years before they Mm. perhaps start to notch back up again under their own steam.
0: I think you mentioned some really valuable points there, William. And, and, you know, it's the type of thing we talk to our clients about, isn't it? I mean, Mm. I'm I'm sure each of us have had numerous conversations with our clients um, who could afford to pay for everything for their children about do, do they encourage the child to take out a loan? Do they pay for it all themselves? How much allowance should they give them? Et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think you know one of the purposes of this podcast is to help people grapple with some of these kind of tricky money mm-hmm. and life type questions. And what I like of the way that you're approaching it with your daughters is you've kind of broken it down into kind of core discretionary and blimey, that's really nice to have. And I think we very often look, to our clients financial planning that way don't we when we're planning for what their future might look like so so yeah that, i think that's really really helpful and uh, and a heartfelt way of, of actually trying to do the right thing by your daughters in terms of educating them about money and life and and also recognizing the fortunate position that you and rachel find yourself in these days
1: um yeah and i think i think probably where we come uh, i think probably where we've landed is we, we want to support you and, and again going back to the sort of conversations that we have with clients i i, I I kind of want to support you, but I'm not here to bail you out. Yeah. So, you know, you ha- w- we all have to learn the lesson that actually you get to a point in life where it, it's, it's on you. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, it was never an option to go back to my parents and say, I need some money. They didn't have any. Mm. Um, and so, although I have got money, you know, it's important to us that the girls... Recognize where the support stops, and if they go beyond that, you know that that's a choice that they've made, yeah. and they have to figure out a way in life that they're going to fund that uh, yeah. and, and, and sort it out themselves.
0: I think on a kind of related kind of subject, one of the things that I observe um, in in my family and my friends, if with clients, are the choices people make around how they spend their money, yeah. and I observe that some people or most people have areas of their life where they spend money without thought, without, without, um, without worry or concern, and then other areas in their life where you notice every penny, and, in fact, it's even worse than that, you begrudge every penny. <laughs> How does that play out for you? Do you have kind of things where you're happy to spend and others where you begrudge spending?
1: Um. <clears throat> I, I, I can certainly think of lots of areas where I'm happy to spend. So, uh, there's not there's not so many where i begrudge spending. I think, I think what I found quite interesting, I mean, I, you know, are you a saver or a spender? I, you know, I think I would naturally put myself down as a saver if you were going to caricature it. Mm-hmm. But, but actually what I find is I actually feel quite a liberated spender. I think because I've always been a saver, yeah, I've always been quite cautious, conservative. I've always saved. As a result of that, I've actually always felt quite relaxed about spending. I think sometimes, if you're a saver, you can get sort of sort of pigeonholed as being a bit sort of tight or not really enjoying things in life. Yeah, but actually, uh, I find because my natural instinct is to save, I've always saved. Uh, and me and Rachel have always saved. Even when we were first married and we had nothing, we we, we always saved something. Mm-hmm which means that we always went on holiday. We've always done nice things. And so actually when it comes to spending, I actually feel quite laid back and relaxed about it because I, I know I've saved and I know I've got the money. So, I mean, the things that I love to spend money on, um, yeah, we do love our holidays. We do really, really love our holidays. We have, we've had some wonderful, wonderful holidays um, and both abroad and in, and in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, uh, I do like my car. Mm-hmm. uh i do uh, i do like my wine I, I've, I've, I've collected i've started collecting wine over years we've got we've always enjoyed wine and it's gone from a let's buy some wine to drink now yes To let's buy more than we're going to drink now so that we actually got some in to actually let's collect it um and that's what I've done over a number of years now. Can
0: I ask you about that collecting wine mm. thing? So I, I get the buying wine to drink now, buying a little bit more so you've, you've got some in. It's a nice mm. thing, isn't it? And I, I remember being on that journey. When you're buying wine to collect, what does what does that mean? Is that a kind of delayed gratification or is it a value play or what, what, what is
1: that? Um, I think it's I think it's a few things. Uh, I think it's something that I find genuinely interesting. I, yeah. I just genuinely find wine interesting. I, I don't claim to be any kind of wine off or anything mm. like that. But I just just enjoy it. Mm. Um, the place where I buy wine from is called the Wine Society. Mm. Uh, and so it's one of those things that once you once they get a sense for the kind of thing that you like and the kind of thing that you do, they, they'll just send you the appropriate stuff so i think um you know what happens is if there's you know if there's a particular vintage or a particular year and they and and it's going to be good and they've secured various wines at various different price points they will just send you all the literature and um and i just really enjoy reading it i really enjoy trying to understand it uh and sort of selecting uh, you know, back in the early days, I used to select in the first couple of pages where the where, and I was driven by the price column. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, you know, it's been a real joy over the years to sort of have to focus mm. a little bit less on the price column and more on the Well, that looks like an interesting one. Well, I haven't got any of that. Yeah. And, and to sort of expand my horizon beyond yeah. just what can I afford? Um, but I just find it genuinely interesting. Mm. Uh, is it clay gratification? Um, I think it probably is. Mm. Um, And I think it's also, not that this was the driver behind it, but what's also nice is that I'm now drinking wine that I bought in 2005, for instance, which is the first time I really bought sort of a a reasonably decent amount of wine in a good vintage, really to keep for a long time. So, So I'm now drinking wine that would probably cost four or five times what I know I paid for it in 2005. So you're almost getting the... The benefit of enjoying really really nice wine that you haven't paid sort of current top dollar for yeah. so that you know that, that that's nice as well yeah yeah there's um, a
0: number of things going on there isn't isn't there really i can i can i can see the pleasure that it brings yeah and um you said you also enjoy cars or
1: you enjoy your car yeah yeah can i ask what you drive please you certainly can yeah no, i um so i drive a jag i drive a jaguar and, and i have to say uh it, 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 I, it gives me just immense uh pleasure i think just just, just having that car and and uh, i think for me that the, i'm not re- it sounds a bit bizarre having m- mentioned that but I, i'm not really a status symbol kind of person it doesn't matter to me that other people see me in it yeah the, the value in that car to me is in the the, the pleasure that i derive from it yeah I think, it, it, you know, wh- where that comes from for me is that, as, as I said, you know, I grew up in a house where we, we didn't have a car. You wanted to go anywhere, you walked, you cycled, or you caught the bus. Yeah, so uh, we, we didn't have a car. And um, when I was in my sort of late teens, when I was sort of like 17, 18, 19, I had, a, I had a couple of mates who were a bit older than me. They were in their sort of mid-20s and, and, and had already been through university. And one of my mates, Al, he, he'd, already, um, he'd already graduated as an engineer. And he had, he had his first job at a local uh, automotive company, Lucas, a big automotive company in oh, Birmingham. I remember that from Birmingham, yes. And, and Lucas uh, had contracts with all the big car manufacturers who, and they would just give them a fleet of cars and say, you know, make it faster, make it quieter, make it more fuel efficient, whatever. My mate Al got on the Jag contract. <laughs> and so <laughs> weekends, he would come and pick me up. He was given a different Jag at weekends. And to, just to drive around at the weekend, it had like a little, like a little computer in the glove box, like reading what, the data of whatever they were trying to do with it. And for me, it was just, wow. You know, I, living where I lived, not even having a car. to yeah. The first car I ever really, really loved, actually, was when I was probably 10 or 11, the first car that I ever really remember noticing was a Jaguar XJS. It was the, it was the low sports car with the big yeah. fins down the back yeah. I remember thinking they were gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was 18, 19, and my mate Al used to pick me up in a jag and I used to go off go off out with him in a jag, I just thought, wow, this is <laughs> awesome. Um and it, it, it I just loved them. I just absolutely loved them. Um and so when I when I finally got one of my of my own and I now drive one, you know, I I can honestly say it would be, be, be a lie and it would be way too cliché to say there's never a day goes by that I don't, enjoy. but I, it's definitely true to say there's probably not a week or a fortnight goes by when I don't have a journey in it and just think, oh, that's nice. That's lovely. But, <laughs> and I think, I think for me, it it, it, it kind of partly, it partly reminds me of where I came from mm. because I grew up with n- not very much mm. and i just remember my mate al coming around in the jag and just and so it, it kind of it, it resonates with me to have yeah. one but but i think in a in a strange sort of way having a car like that it, it, it sounds a bit bizarre but i think it also keeps me a bit grounded mm-hmm. it's a bit slightly strange thing to say but what i mean by that is i feel grateful that i've got it
0: yes yeah
1: and it makes me feel lucky for what I've got it makes me appreciate what I've got because mm-hmm. I know where I came from yeah. I know what it means to me to have that car yeah. and, and, and as a status symbol if, if someone took it away tomorrow and said you can never have one again I, you know yeah it wouldn't bother me that's not what it that's not the box it ticks for me for me it just it it speaks of where I've come from and what I've achieved is the wrong word but where I've got to yeah and, and it just I just feel very grateful mm. when when to have that car, I feel very fortunate. Mm. I feel incredibly grateful and appreciative. And, and so in a bizarre sort of way, it keeps me quite grounded.
0: I, can, such feel, I can see, I can absolutely see all of those things. What And that's money well spent. I think that's money well spent, William. And uh, thank you for sharing oh, that. I, I think it's a, I think you paint a beautiful picture of something that can just seem like a status symbol. It, it can just seem like a tick in a box, but how you've explained it, it resonates with me, and I can, I can smell the leather. <laughs> <That's> lovely, <laughs> um, William. Why is money such a taboo subject? Do you think just you know generally with with
1: with people? Um, I mean, I think there's a natural British reserve, isn't there, to, to, to sort of keep things. By. It's, it's not just money, is it? People, you know often quite close about emotional things mm. and, uh, as well. I think. I guess going back to the, our previous conversation about cars, I guess in some respects it, that people don't want to be perhaps judged. Mm. Um, I think you know, but people do make value judgments about other people based on money. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, certainly, again, going back to my upbringing, I didn't want to be judged because I came from a place with no money. Mm. You know, I wanted to be sort of recognized on my merits not just pigeonholed because I was the kid that came you know from where I came yeah but I think equally if you've got a lot of money or if you've got things in life I think equally you know you don't want to be pigeonholed so you know go back to the car the value of the car for me is 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 not as the status symbol and in many respects I'm almost me and Rachel changed our cars at the same time so we both had spanking new cars outside and Embarrassed isn't the word, but I, she, I felt modest about it. I felt sheepish about it. I almost didn't want people to notice, even though inevitably they yeah. we were going to.
0: Yeah,
1: and I think people make value judgments about people based on mm. money, mm. Um, whether you've got a lot or a little. People mm. make a judgment on you as a person, I think, sometimes, mm. based on what you drive or where you live, or yeah. they perceive you as having a lot or a little or whatever. Yeah. and And I guess... But you know, maybe, maybe there's just that reluctance. I think to be pigeonholed and judged. Mm. Um, I, 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 I feel like I've got quite a good perspective on the relativity of of money.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, having grown up without money, but also now, by my standards, having having lots of money, but also working with other people who are wealthy mm. uh, by a measure. Mm you know what is a lot or a little to one person is totally different to the person next to them and, and, and i think that inevitably sort of leads to sort of value judgments where you can make judgments about people based on i mean and i think people p- perhaps that's why people are reluctant to, to mm. talk about it it's like th- th- there's almost you know if you haven't got a lot you don't necessarily want to be pigeonholed yeah. or, or, or valued as a person because of that but if you have got a lot by some people's measure it, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, it's, it's all right for you. Yeah. Well, well, maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. Having money has nothing to do with whether things are all right for you. all yeah. lots of things in life that aren't all right, but, yeah. but money's yeah. got nothing to do with. So I, I guess it's, it's partly the British Reserve. I, I, I expect we don't talk about money. We don't talk about emotions. You know, people, mm. people are private. Mm. I think certainly for myself, I, I don't, in the same way, I, I never wanted to be judged when I was growing up without money. I don't particularly want me- people to make sort of false judgments about me now just yeah. because of the car that I drive or, or whatever. Yeah,
0: it, it's it's a very weighted subject matter. Money, I think, isn't it? And and for all the things you e- explain, and I and I think increasingly there's this correlation between net wealth and self net worth and self worth, which is, yeah. is 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 maybe something we shouldn't be particularly proud of as a as a as a, as a, as a population really but but it's perpetuated I think isn't it yeah, but absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely definitely now I've got to ask you this question William because of your background albeit you've told me you were an auditor and not a tax accountant but I'm mm-hmm. going to ask you anyway if you could change one thing about the UK taxation system whether that's as an individual as a financial planner or just as a, as a citizen what would that be
1: um. <laughs> I think um, there's, there's probably a few things. I think I, I have no problem paying tax, and I, and I have no problem with a progressive tax system. And as I've learnt more, I, I'm i quite happy to pay more tax. Um, I think I want the tax system to be fair, and I think I want the tax system to be... I think the tax system sh- should be there to sort of try and encourage the kind of behaviours th- that you want, and I think... It doesn't always work that way. So pensions would be a good example. Mm. I think I, I cannot understand the logic in a society where people just don't save enough and are not saving enough for their retirement. I just don't, do not see the logic of capping what people can have in a pension. That seems counterintuitive to me in a society that isn't saving enough for retirement. Um, so I would certainly simplify the pension. I think the pension system, as a financial planner, I have to remind myself what the pension are. No, they're so stupidly complicated. I would definitely simplify that and create more incentives to save into pensions. Yeah. I think, in terms of progressive tax, I think at the moment uh, tax it falls short of fifty percent, which is great. I think when when the tax system hits fifty percent, I think something's I think something's gone out of whack there. Mm-hmm. I think when somebody, for every extra pound that you earn, you keep less than less of it than somebody else that feels like the balance has shifted mm-hmm. so i think i would definitely sort of steer clear of going into a, a tax system an income tax system again where you're into 50 percent and above um but yeah i mean i, I guess having gone back to the the, the pension point and, and, and you know I, I think it's slightly counterintuitive that that people that are in a position of funding themselves to retire are almost inhibited from doing that yeah in terms of what they can put in or what they can save, that seems crazy to me.
0: And the, and there are some real imbalances around that at the moment. And and where, where I see that is not so much that these people who have amassed quite a significant amount of so are being capped at the top end, but those that have been on an earnings trajectory and have just started to earn larger sums of money, then find the amount that they can actually put into pensions is mm-hmm. significantly reduced. That that seems a little bit
1: counterintuitive to me, for sure. Yeah, um, no, but but the, contra- the slightly more controversial flip side of that is, do you means test state pension? You will. Um, so yeah. so every, other, every other state benefit is either means tested mm-hmm. or is taken away at certain levels of mm-hmm. wealth. For me personally, the slightly more controversial bit would be, if I've got the means to save for my own retirement, don't inhibit how much I can have in a pension but the quid pro quo is personally I would have no problem with my state pension being means tested away either yeah. because every yeah. other state pension uh, sorry every other state benefit Anything. that I'm paying for has been means tested away yeah. from me yeah. and, and I'm fine with that because I, I'm, I'm, that's what the state yeah. is yeah. there and for help people that can't afford to have things themselves.
0: Fascinating debate, isn't it? And yeah, uh, yeah I, I can I can see us coming back to these type of topics mm. because I, you know, I, I, you know, there's no right or wrong answers in some respects. Mm. But I think sometimes we do need to, um, to to go into some of these places where our initial reaction would be state pension. Mm. I deserve my state pension, which we yeah. feel very much as Brits. I think, don't we? Yeah. Um, and maybe we need to to start to think about that differently. Now, in a slightly uh, more frivolous vein, William. Okay. Could I ask, what have you bought over the last 12 months or so? And I appreciate it's been a bit more tricky during lockdown, that's cost maybe less or around £30, that's bought you the most joy and satisfaction?
1: Um, well, yeah, as you say, it's been a sort of slightly sort of slightly strange year, has it, where spending's been a bit different? Yeah. one um, well, little I do like my wine gadgets. Oh. I have to say. So my latest wine gadget is uh which cost what did that cost about 15, twenty quid I think was uh, a little wine aerator. <laughs> well, so, how does that work? <laughs> so, basically, it's like a little, it's a, a little aerator with a filter on the top. So if you've yes. got sediment in the wine, but you, you basically if you if you open a bottle of wine, what you really want to do is let it breathe. Mm. And if you're going to polish off the lot, you, you ideally you might decant it for for a while beforehand. If you just can't be bothered with all that, you just want to crack on with it. <laughs> you can you can open it and you can pour it through this little aerator and it sort of pulls air through it and sort of aerates it as it goes through and then it's got a little filter in the top to catch any sediment that you that you've got I'm making so, a note of that as we speak <laughs> thank you for it just it just means if it's Friday evening and you can't be bothered to wait, you can just crack it up <laughs> and get on with it. <laughs> Oh, practical
0: and and bring in joy. I love I love that combination. Um, William, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, and uh, you you've been great. You've shared some really interesting um, facets of your upbringing, some tips along the way, some brilliant ideas about how you're working with your daughters around money. Um, um, I like to leave the listeners with a money pearl of wisdom. Um, so they can they can actually have even more than you've already given to take away from this. What would your William
1: Money pearl of wisdom be? Um, uh, I think for me, I think for me, you know, financial planning can get quite complex. But if you boil it down to its simplest, I think financial planning is actually incredibly simple, and it's this: spend less than you earn. And I think if I could if I could distill financial advice into one thing, it would be spend less than you earn yeah because whether you earn a little or a lot if you spend less than you earn and save the difference yeah then you're highly unlikely to ever run into any serious trouble and I I think you know going back to what we talked about earlier on in terms of sending the girls out into into the world if I could leave them with nothing other than one pearl of wisdom it'd be spend less than you earn and then you'll probably be all right
0: brilliant i love that simple to the point something we could easily all get our heads around um interesting how many of us don't uh william thank you you've been a fantastic guest i've really enjoyed chatting with you um look forward to catching up soon
1: thanks bye for now thank you bye-bye
0: bye-bye doesn't william pass on a stack of wisdom in this conversation i so often hear that tension from clients I've spoken to in the past about knowing just how far to help their children as they leave home and also letting them make their own way. I also love the idea of William being a liberated spender. Now, before you go, just let me tell you about my next Money Expresso guest, uh, Emmanuel Gobbio. Now, Emmanuel shares a fascinating journey from uh, being brought up on a railway estate in Burgundy, in France, to becoming one of Europe's most sought after keynote speakers, author, and consultants in leadership and collaboration. It's one you won't want to miss. In the meantime, have a great week and look after yourself. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments or questions on any of the matters discussed or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk, and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you.